Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. We are your hosts, James and Anthony. In this episode, let's discuss Avatar The Way of Water. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. We are so excited to talk about Avatar The Way of Water. We just watched it in IMAX 3D. It absolutely blew our minds. Jim, how'd you like it? I loved it. You know, I think James Cameron again proved himself to be the king of sequels. This was an excellent film. Uh, It improved in many elements on the first film with Avatar. And I think they did a great job of presenting it in movie theaters for IMAX 3D specifically where I don't remember if they did this for the first Avatar movie, but they previewed it. Obviously, the last couple trailers were in 3D, like the last three trailers playing at AMC IMAX were in 3D to kind of get you ready for the 3D experience. Because I remember, I think the first time we saw IMAX 3D with Avatar, the first one, they didn't do that. And it took me like maybe five minutes to really get used to the 3D. But as soon as Avatar, the way of water started, I was pretty much there. My brain and my eyes were ready for it. And then that big... IMAX like the the pushing with (laughs) the the numbers that got my eyes watering and I was just prepared to go but they did a really clever job preparing your eyes and your brain for the 3D experience yeah I agree I think that it was smart to open with those trailers it was the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy trailer and then the Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania trailer were 3D and I felt like I adjusted in those trailers and then when the film started I was like already like the first opening establishing shots I was completely used to the 3D and FYI, James's voice sounds a little extra nasally today. He got a bloody nose, so he right got, when we right when we hit yeah. record, so I got it's stuffed with uh, yeah. tissue paper right now, so but it sounds quite uh, nasally. That's I'll, why I'll pull it out yeah. in a little bit. I just, gotta, I just gotta, <laughs> had to plug it up, man. And uh, I found the 3D experience to be really breathtaking and immersive. I was completely sold on the illusion, and it really felt like I was immersed in this other world. I remember we watched the trailer at IMAX headquarters a month ago, in and with the 3D glasses and. We saw another film, but they th- they showed the trailer in 3D, and it was just an uh, awe-inspiring two minutes. But then with this film, I felt really immersed in it. It didn't feel like 3D-E within 10 minutes of the film. It just felt like I was just immersed in the characters, in the environments, and it was really stunning. I think it was probably the best 3D experience I've ever had at a theater. Otherwise, I don't enjoy 3D. I'm probably going to see the film not in 3D as well, just to get that other viewing experience. But the high frame rate plus the 3D and what I would consider the greatest CGI animation ever put on film with this with this movie really sold me on the world, and I felt completely immersed in it. Yeah, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but Avatar, it looked realistic. But Avatar, the way of water, looked real. It was astounding what they did with their animation and CGI. And obviously, we've been waiting 13 years for this movie. They took about nine years, to eight years developing the technology. And they started filming in 2017 when they started doing all their underwater tests and everything like that. So we'll get into a lot of specifics of how they actually made this film behind the scenes when it comes to cinematography, virtual filmmaking, 3D filmmaking underwater motion capture which is the first time this has ever been done underwater motion capture it never been done that was like one of the first big challenges they had to pull off 
and figure out how to do it, which is uh, a really funny way how they did it. Instead of using scuba gear, they just had to hold your breath. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it's just incredible filmmaking. And, you know, I I would say the story, it's kind of like the first one. It's nothing we've never really not seen before. It's a little predictable at times. Some of the characters are a little cliched and predictable as well. But at the end of the day, it's a solid story. Lots of new interesting characters, so please bear with us as we are pronouncing these names of characters we're just meeting. We've only seen this movie once, and these names didn't exist really before <laughs> before Avatar, so we're just just bear with us on the pronunciations of the names and in case we mix some characters up. I'm just going to call a bunch of them the kid. Yeah, the kids, <laughs> the second son. <laughs> that's easier. Young Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> like, like, I think that's the way we're going to go with it. <laughs> I agree. I, it's not a perfect film, but I found this film to uh, be better than the first Avatar in terms of its emotional gravity, I was an absolute emotional wreck by the end of the film. I cried a few times, but when the movie was over and the final those final moments happened, I was cry I was weeping. And it, I was surprised how emotional it was because the first film it had it definitely had moments, especially when the the big tree was uh, destroyed by the sky people. That was a really powerful moment. But this film had a different kind of uh, powerhouse in terms of the emotional stakes and the family that was built. And uh, we won't spoil anything quite yet, but there are some really, really grave situations that happen in this film. And I found it to be uh, very emotionally powerful and extremely touching. And I found a deeper connection with the characters than I did in the first film combined. So it was just great work by the actors, but also because the CGI animation is so remarkable... It really, I didn't for a moment question anything that I was seeing. In the first Avatar, you know, you buy into it, but you go, you also, you know that you're watching CGI animation. But with this film, I really felt like I was watching real beings interacting, and it felt like that. Like, just the opening of the film when the family are just sitting in their canopy, holding each other, goofing off and joking. Like, I was like, it looks like real creatures, like real alien beings, like, just there on screen. And... I found it just so remarkable how the animators were able to expand on their technology. And there were so many shots where I was just like, how is that not real? <laughs> there were there were a couple of times where I was just like, I just raised my hands. I was like, are you kidding me? This is not, this isn't really on screen. It was um, confoundingly impressive what the animators did. Not to mention most of the water you're seeing in this movie is fake it's animated it's cgi and we got a lot of flack we made a clip about that and talked about that <laughs> like a few months ago we kind of were talking about avatar the way of water and previewing it when they started releasing behind the scenes images and our first looks at it in the first stills of the film high quality stills they were like released on empire i think or something like that and we we talked about it and we're like it's incredible i don't know how they made this water look so real a lot of people are like it's real water what are you talking about they film with real water <laughs> Almost 90% of the water in this movie or around there is fake water. It's CGI. So that was a huge challenge, which we'll talk about when we start getting into the behind the scenes and you know visual effects uh, work that they had to do, especially with wet and digital and how far they've come with technology and how that was a huge challenge for them. And that's why this movie took so long to make is developing the technology to re- create realistic looking water, which we've seen before. Like I think um, Luca, the water looks really terrific in that film. Finding Nemo, the water looks really great in that as well. Mm. But this movie just took it to a whole new level. Again, break changing the game for animation, for CGI, for motion capture, just like the first one did as well. And I think it was 
Uh, I mean, in terms of waiting 13 years for a sequel and James Cameron saying it needs to make $2 billion or bust and the hype, I think the hype is satisfying. And, you know, I, 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 my thirst has been quenched for Avatar after waiting so long. That water quenched yeah, it. Yeah, I think it was great. My expectations were met, even surpassed in some elements, kind of just like stagnant in other areas. But I think the animation, the CGI was just so stellar that it really makes up for... The plot elements that I'm not a huge fan of and the characters that I thought were a little bland, but that spectacle of this movie, you know, movies like this and then I would say Top Gun Maverick bringing the spectacle of cinema back to theaters that we feel like we haven't really enjoyed so much the last few years, especially with lockdowns and COVID. And this movie obviously spectacle over story in a lot of ways, but still really great thematic elements of family and the love. As well as, um, what was I just about to say? I, something I just, great, I'm something sure. Something really emotional. I'm sure it was going to be a, awesome. There's a thematic element that's really emotional. Oh, I was going to say, uh, the emotional beats, there are a lot more in this yeah. film compared to the first one. You said you brought up the tree and everything. That was probably the only one of the only devastating moments in that movie. A few other beats there, here and there. But this movie has several beats of emotional stakes and swings going back and forth. And I got to say, so the tree sequence in the first film is a great metaphor for deforestation and you know, hum- humankind's destruction of nature. And in this film, there was a, I think it's an even better portrayal of mankind's impact on the earth because you get the deforestation, which is, I, I, it was smart how they open it with new humans just arriving and just like setting up shop. It was like Star Wars movie almost watching yeah, it like a new one. Yeah, it was one. wild, but also the hunting scene of the humans against the Tolkien to be extremely tragic and horrifying in a lot of ways. And the way they filmed it was just by showing it from the perspective of both parties and and how ruthless these humans were and this beautiful creature and we learn how later on in the film how intelligent they are how emotional they are and um in a lot of ways uh it's proved to be that they are more intelligent than both um human beings and the natives of Pandora and i i found that sequence which was quite long it was like 15 minutes to be absolutely um tragic and horrifying and I think that really added to what James Cameron's motives for making these movies of, of showing, um, translating metaphors of our impact on the world and of nature. And I just found it horrifying, but in, in an important way. And I think it absolutely what he's doing with the films ju- absolutely justifies their existence in their big budgets because, you know, if you can make more people aware of things like this and make them look at the world in a different way, then then that's worth it. Uh, I, but I found that scene in particular extremely powerful and resonant. And focusing on the oceans because a lot of people, you know, we're not exposed to the ocean very often. And people, you know, plenty of people care about the destruction of the oceans, but it's kind of not as talked about as other parts of the earth. Now, Avatar The Way of Water was directed by James Cameron, written by James Cameron, Adam Silver, Rick Jaffa, Josh Friedman, and Shane Salerno. It follows Jake Sully, who lives with his newfound family formed on the extrasolar moon. Pandora. Once a familiar threat returns to finish what was previously started, Jake must work with Neytiri and the army of the Navi race to protect their home. On IMDb right now, as the date of filming, it is an 8.1. Rotten Tomatoes has it at a 78% critic score, 94% audience score, and this was arguably the most expensive film ever made. It's made a box office already of over $500 million globally in just uh, less than a week. And this is the seventh film in history to cost $300 million or more after Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, Avengers Age of Ultron, Justice League, 
Avengers Infinity War, and Avengers Endgame. A little information on the screenwriting behind the story, and this is information from IBC. Screenwriters including Rick Jaffa and Adam Silver, who both scripted the Planet of the Apes reboots, as well as Josh Freeman and Shane Salerno, were hired to shape the notes of James Cameron's thousands of pages of books in notebooks into an ambitious series of four films. The process took months, but Cameron wanted to have all four screenplays completed before moving on to production. So that's why he was spending so much time in developing technology as well as they were writing number two, number three, number four. And number five, the script is done, but that's not set for production yet. That hasn't been approved for uh, production. But they're they're also filming two, three, and four back to back to back to back. They're filming right now, so they're still going in production for that as well. But he wanted to get all four of those new sequel scripts done before they started production, which is a smart thing to do, but obviously takes a lot of time. And now, rather than create a host of new planets and moons, James Cameron chose to continue to explore more biomes and cultures of Pandora itself with the Avatar sequels. He reasoned that the moon could contain a range of landscapes just like Earth. Pandora is, after all, a metaphor for our world. The director has spent much of the intervening decade underwater himself, pursuing environmental exploration projects, including setting a solo deep dive record of 35,787 feet to the bottom of the Mariana Trench in 2012. Seemingly at home in the sea as on land, Cameron appears to want to take the legacy of filmmaker and aquatic pioneer Jacques Cousteau to another level. I found the, the, the water people and the water tribes to be really stunning and beautiful i like how that um that tribe those people their slight their features are slightly different from uh, the navi and also they have like these almost like fins along their forearms to help them swim better their tail their tails are flat and wider to help them swim as well so have evolved over time for living underwater and that's why when the family when the sullies arrive they're kind of teased and the others are like how are they going to swim look at their hands they don't and look at their tails. They're not going to be able to swim very fast. I love the creativity of the animals, the new species of animals we see, especially the underwater ones, and and how just how uh, the Navi can fly on their animals. These these uh, water people can swim and basically fly underwater. And also, uh, I love the Tolkien, which are essentially like uh, great white whales, great whales in a way. Uh, I thought I found it extremely creative. Um, but also practical and, and very believable with the world that they were that they had already created, and also we got to see more underwater life and its connection to Ewa, Ewa and the spirit of Pandora, and how especially Kiri can connect with it. And I liked Kiri's connection to Ewa and how she can eventually, you know, change. She can control uh, animals and plant life at her will, and they listen to her, they help her, um, and all, it's it's difficult for her because she is an outcast. She's strange. Uh, she's looked at as weird for having this strange connection to things, but I found it to be a beautiful story for her character arc. So the water tribe and these water peoples who live in these islands uh, in Pandora in the ocean, they're called the Metkaina. And so it's really cool to go there and get a new kind of culture of Navi. And there's almost kind of like, you know, you could argue maybe kind of a different race of Navi because, you know, their skin tone is a little lighter than the the forest dwellers. And I'm sure maybe when we get more uh, Navi explored in future Avatar films because 
he's going to do this movie was about 65% water. The next one, Avatar 3, will be about 30% water. Avatar 4 will be about 10 to 15% water and even fewer water in the fifth film if they make that one. I wonder if we'll get like an Earth tribe. Yeah, maybe different, yeah. different obviously, landscapes uh, adapt. People a desert evolve. tribe would be yeah, cool. Yeah, desert tribe or yeah. something like that. So obviously, uh, creatures and beings, they adapt to their landscape and their environment. So that's why we have obviously different races and different skin tones, just like different races and skin tones amongst the Navi, you could argue. And yeah. like Eddie said, they, they've evolved to their their water landscape and their water lifestyle, which is really fascinating to see. And I, I thought it was really interesting and really clever too. Also, all these new characters, they're, they're really interesting. Kate Winslet is phenomenal as Ronal. She didn't have as much to do as I thought she would compared to all the behind-the-scenes information we were learning. I'm sure that's all going to come into play for Avatar 3. And then... um, This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We also Cliff had Curtis was Cliff great. Curtis yeah. was so freaking awesome in this movie. He had a lot to do. He's the tribal leader of the Metcaina. Um, and then we also have just a ton of new characters. And I think it was great to bring the family element on both sides of the Metcaina, as well as Jake Sully and his clan. Uh, and Natiri's family, you know, Sully's the Sully stick together. So cute. And, and I like to see this gearhead, how he kind of like uh, uh, runs his family and ter- him and Natiri run their family and how he disciplines his sons versus his daughters. And he's like, take a knee when they get, when they do a meeting. Yeah, it's funny. It's yeah. just like, it's like combat or like militaristic, but also in a way like sports in a lot of ways, yeah. like taking a knee, let's huddle up. I thought it was pretty fun and cute. And versus the family elements of the Metcaina and their tribal leaders' sons and how and daughters, how they're supposed to integrate together. And we have like the cliche moments of, of bullying, of harassment, of putting another's child into a dire situation, a life and death situation where he fortunately survives when he's saved by that Great whale. scene. Yeah. Great sequences in this movie. And again, I don't know half these characters' names off the top yeah. of my head. <laughs> so we're doing our best. And this cast list is enormous. And it's hard to like. Just, it's an ensemble. It's huge. It's a big huge ensemble. Cast, but yeah. all the child actors and all the young actors are phenomenal. Especially 
um, Jack Champion, who played Spider, who's basically space Tarzan in a lot of ways. <laughs> and he was actually cast really young. And I think he was only 13 or 14 when he's filming this movie wow. as Spider because now he's like his full growth spurt and he's an adult now. Uh-huh. Um, but I think he was 13 when he filmed this movie as I Spider. looked him up on IMDb and he looks completely different because yeah. <laughs> he's like an adult now. That's how long ago they filmed this movie. Yeah, it's filmed it's, in 2017. Yeah, it's hard to be. It, it makes sense, but you don't realize that. And I mean, the amount of uh, post production put into this film is just really impressive and I mean kudos to the artists because I mean they did a phenomenal job and what really sold me uh, in the trailer especially um, but with Spider's character in particular and then watching it in, in the film but when I when I watched the trailer for the first time when you see a human with the Navi and they both look like they're really there that's for me I was like wow this looks amazing when you have the spider character right next to a Navi character and you're like, they both look like they're really there in camera. And it, it felt like that the entire film, While whenever Spider was on screen, I didn't feel like he was um, surrounded by people in mocap suits who were animated. I felt like watching him, he was in, he was surrounded by real characters and real these real beings. And I, I found that to be probably the most impressive aspect to the CGI animation was that the live action character looked just as real as the animated character. And let's go through the cast some more. Obviously, obviously, Sam Worthington back as Jake Sully. He's probably been waiting for this role to come back for a while. Zoe Zaldana, who's one of the busiest actresses in Hollywood. She was obviously phenomenal as Nateri, as usual. Uh, Sigourney Weaver came back, and she plays Kiri. And I found it a little odd. Even though they kind of de-aged her voice, it still sounded like... Really they brought it up a pitch, but it still sounded like an older woman's older voice. Older woman's voice yeah. for Sigourney it threw, Weaver. It was, it was throwing me off for sure. A little bit. I, I, suggest, I feel yeah. like they should have just cast a young yeah. actress. But she did all the mocap for Kiri, which is really fascinating and really a testament to her work ethic for sure. Like yeah. being underwater, doing all those sequences. I understand what Cameron wanted to do, but I it just was taking me out of the scenes a bit. Sometimes, yeah. like her voice was just too mature yeah. for a like a ten or eleven yeah. year old. Um, Stephen Lang is back as Quarch. I thought it was really clever how they brought him back and how they the the Sky People have decided to go full Navi and just basically cloned with their human DNA and memories of their Marines, cloned them into Navi and grew them in a lab, and then are sending them to Pandora using their own strengths and and, and abilities against the Navi themselves. Great to get this other this great antagonist back in this movie. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, Cliff Curtis plays Tonawari. That's his name. Joel David Morse back as Norm. CCH Pounder as Moats. Edie Falco as General Ardmore. <laughs> I didn't so, know she was in it. It was so great to see her. Yeah. Like I haven't seen her in so long in like a big movie or anything since obviously the, the Sopranos. But it was so awesome. I was like, oh my god, it's Edie Falco. I, I read this interview with her this morning, and she said that she didn't even realize the movie was out. She she thought the movie had already come out and failed, <laughs> and uh, she just never heard about it. So she. And then she's like, oh, the movie's out now? Oh, wow. Good for that. Because they filmed it so long ago. That's really And funny. I'm sure she's not like on social media and stuff. And she probably doesn't understand that it took five years for it to get released. Yeah. Uh, Brendan Cowell is Scoresby. I believe he was the ship captain. Jermaine Clement makes a great role in this movie. He's uh, Dr. Carvin, the marine biologist. He did a decent Garvin. American accent. Yeah, a pretty solid yeah, American pretty accent. American. A little, little New Zealand slip-ups well, yeah. here and there. But his character is like one of those characters who's like, yeah, you you don't like what's going on, but you're still a part of it. Profiting it's off kind of, of it. like yeah. uh, conflicting character. Um, then all these young actors and actresses did phenomenal jobs as the young Navi. The kids did a great job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Giovanna Ribisi's back for a little cameo. So is Dilip Rao as Max Patel. He's back for a little bit. But this cast was really terrific, really phenomenal ensemble. 
that and that was also a major difference from the first film. This was a big ensemble, and the first film was really Jake and Natiri's story, and this one it was everyone's story in a lot of ways. And I really I, I think that so the second act was quite long, and I think they could have shaved off about fifteen minutes. But what it did do, and what they did a great job is when they get to the Water Tribe is where that's when we really get to know the family, get to know the kids. Uh, we're learning the way of water along with them. And it allows the audience to make these connections to these all these new characters. So I understand that James Cameron wanted to take his time with that entire sequence. And that really makes it the uh, the finale more impactful when everyone's in danger because you know everyone so well. But I do think they could have shaved off probably 15 minutes from the runtime to just speed up that middle act a little bit better. Uh, but otherwise, I think that uh, they did a terrific job with such a big new ensemble of giving everyone their bit. Uh, understanding that showing that each character is slightly different and what makes them unique and what their own little conflicts and motivations are, especially with the kids. And I, I found especially the the little daughter to be super cute. <laughs> Took <Tuk. laughs> she's she's adorable. <laughs> but but the two sons did a good job. They have a great relationship. It's complex and also it's it's quite complex with their father Jake, who is really just focused on being a protector. And that's his theme. That's that's his theme, and his thorough arc. His arc in this film is. He believes that the best course of action is to be a protector and to to run away from conflict, to do whatever it takes to protect his family and to avoid violence and war. And it takes the course of this film to realize that running away is not the way to protect his family. The, they're going to have to fight. And the re- really, the, the, it's not just his family that needs to be protected. It's every, it's every family. It's all of Pandora needs to be protected from the sky people. And the only way to do that is to stand to get is to band together and fight, and that's what it takes him the entire course of this story to realize that. And Loak is very much a lead character in much of this film. He's the second eldest son of Jake and Natiri. Natayem is the older brother. He's like the the great, the perfect son in uh, Loak's eyes. So, but Loak is the one who's kind of getting off into trouble, getting into adventures. He forms that bond with the Tolkan named Payakan. Who saves his life after he gets duped by uh, Aonang into being stuck in the middle of the ocean? Great job with the names. Thanks. <laughs> and attacked by that giant fish because you know it's these kids. They're young. They're naive and they're ignorant yeah. and they're innocent. So obviously, you know, they've been forest dwellers their entire lives, and obviously they they're familiar with the threats and dangers of the forest because Navi they open the film up saying that it's full of so many j- dangers. Obviously, the ocean is going to be filled is filled with equal amounts of dangerous, if not more dangerous creatures, just like our oceans often are as well. And I think uh, obviously Loak is just so prideful and wants to prove himself that his arrogance kind of gets in his way a lot of the times. But he's also an outcast, just like the Tolkien. He befriends Payakan. There's a great storyline of him trying to find acceptance throughout this entire film, not only from the Navi and his tribe and his family, but also specifically from his father, which finally at the end of the film, after he saves his father's life from beneath the ship, his father says, I see you, son. For like, you can assume it's maybe the first time he's ever said that to him. Yeah, that was a great emotional moment. That gave me goosebumps, and it was so, it was amazing. And I also like the detail they have where uh, Jake and Terry's kids, um, they're called half-breeds by the others, and... And they do have a different genetic code from the the Navi where they have uh, four fingers and a thumb as opposed to three fingers and a thumb. And they're often teased by the others for, look at their fingers, look at their fingers. And so I like how that there was there is some human DNA in them, uh, which makes them different. And they are the first of their kind in a lot of ways. So the entire family, they are 
outcasts, but Jake and Atiri's stronghold in the community and uh, war uh, being celebrated for their, their their abilities in war and for saving the tribe, uh, it, it allowed them to really flourish in the the Navi tribe. But when they go to a new tribe, they are immediately look, look, looked at as very different. And almost like freaks, yeah. aliens, you know, mm-hmm. that's what they're called. And really, Natiri is the only one that's like a pure blood Navi, you could say a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But she's such a great character and a great mother and and spouse. She's always held on and killed me in this. She's always she's, so good. She always supports her family no yeah. matter what. Um, also, Spider backed him for a little bit. I think he's a really solid character because he adds a lot more depth to Quaritch, who's back as our antagonist. So Quaritch obviously gets killed by Neytiri in the first Avatar film. His DNA memories were sent back to a lab to create a clone of himself as a Navi, a, a genetic Navi, not an avatar like some of the other characters use, which is, again, why they're... It's a really good plot. Now they're going to send these marine Navis to Pandora to yeah. take out Jake Sully. It's smart to differentiate. It's not an avatar. He's exactly. not plugged in. He is the, the a Navi. And but I, Spider adds yeah. so much humanity to Quartz because even though he kind of tries to disassociate himself from Spider in many ways, he does try the personal approach, but he also shuts down the uh, j- the mental torturing method that uh, uh, Edie Falco's character, the general, is trying to use to get the information out of Spider once he's captured. He shuts that down out of, you could say, love for his son. He also doesn't want his son to die when he's holding... Uh, um, when Neytiri yeah, has him. When uh, Neytiri has Spider at knife point, he also has, I think it was, it was a Kiri at knife point. Mm-hmm. And he's the one that backs out and drops the knife because he doesn't want anything to happen to Spider or Miles, you could say. And he has a connection to him, even though he tells him, like, I'm not, I have no connection to you. We mean nothing to each other. I'm not your father. I have nothing to do with him. I just have his memories. He actually does feel like a father deep down. I think it comes out and there brings humanity to this antagonist who was so evil in the first film. Obviously, horrifically evil in this film as well, but there's just a nuance added to the character that I think it really needed. Yeah, and, and then he calls him Spider's son at the end of the film, but Spider uh, leaves him to go be with uh, the, the Sullys to become a Sully. Son for a son. A son, son. For a son. I will say, I, I think that Stephen Lang did an amazing job, and I think that it was really smart how they brought the Colonel back, and it wor- I think it worked better than the first film. And it was a, a better performance and a more complex version of the character, and I really liked how they brought him back. And I like how the scale of the conflict was a little bit smaller than the first one. Whereas in this one, the colonel's just hunting the Sullys because Jake is such an uh, important asset to uh, Pandora because of his knowledge of the Sky People, because of his ability with military formation strategies and understanding how the Sky People operate. He is their most valuable asset. So that's why the colonel and his crew are on this mission to find Jake and kill him and his family because he they if they take out Sully then they have a much better chance of dominating Pandora i will say i would have liked it if the colonel died at the end of the film yeah i, I think that i'm i wasn't sure how i felt about knowing that he's going to come back and then is he going to be in every movie i think that there may have been more potential to get like a a better antagonist maybe um that suits the later stories Obviously, James Cameron can do whatever he wants, but when he survived at the end of this film, I found that kind of like an odd choice, and I was like, I think we're kind of done with this character. I'm happy to see him go and to get a new antagonist. That's So I found it like just like, oh, man, is he surviving this? That, that threw me off. Unless he's going to give him a redemption arc, maybe, and he wants to fight wants to be for Navi. the Navi eventually by the third or fourth film. But yeah, I agree. I think two movies is uh, is plenty. I was fine, like you said. I agreed.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To have him back for this film, I thought it was a really clever way to bring him back into the movie. And again, a great antagonist to Jake Sully. But yeah, at the end of the film, I was disappointed that Spider saved him because obviously you can assume Spider would have saved him because he's got a good heart. He's a good kid. And he was raised right and, and really well by Jake Sully and Neytiri and the Navi. Well, not necessarily Neytiri. She kind of hates <laughs> Spider. It's <laughs> just him. She just doesn't think he belongs there. Yeah, well, yeah. He was hiding from her yeah. in, on the ship. She, he thought she was going to kill him. She probably was. She was, she was bloodthirsty. <laughs> she had bloodlust in her eyes. Not once did she say, are you okay? Um, so, I mean, I was a little disappointed too. I thought he should have passed away. He should have died, I think, yeah. at, at the end of the film. Because I, I think how much more... Can he? Can that character add? That's what that I mean, he hasn't I, already done. I think James will probably give him a redemption arc. Yeah. Which can that character even ever redeem himself? I don't think I don't so. Think He's so caused too much death and destruction. Exactly. But the plot's solid for this film. You know, so they're trying to find Jake Sully. Jake Sully and the Sullys. They have to uh, be. They ex, they have to exile themselves from their tribe. He no longer is the leader. He passes it off to somebody else. And they go into exile because they don't want anything to happen to their tribe. So they find refuge. Uh, in the water tribes, the Metkain, I think that's what I said the first time. And fortunately, they take him in because they all know of who he is. They know him. They know Neytiri. Kate Winslet's character, uh, Ronal, she does not want them immediately. But, you know, they finally accept them, which is not the best decision because obviously the war is going to come there. I would say it's, it's fine until, you know, some plot points for me. I understand. You got to. Push the plot forward. Yeah, sending the ship to come check out Kiri. Obviously, they're gonna mistake. they're gonna yeah. pick up on that helicopter. You're supposed to be in exile, and you're sending coordinates digitally. You're, you're you're sending where you are, your location to people and ships. Obviously, they're the sky people are gonna pick up on a ship that's going somewhere. So I think that's like a plot point that James has to put in the movie to push the plot forward. How are they gonna find them? They can't just go through all of these hundreds and hundreds of islands. It would take forever. To find Jake Sully, or before they even found out where he was, they didn't even know he was where the islands yeah, are. Yeah, I understand that he they were desperate and he wanted to save Kiri, his daughter, and he was he made a, a choice. But I also think that there wasn't enough gravity gravities put on that decision in the film. It yeah. wasn't nobody said like, oh, how dare you send the ship over here? Is Obviously, gonna... like Jake's a smart yeah. guy. His character should be like, I shouldn't do that because they're gonna come looking for us. They're gonna yeah. know where we are. So yeah. it's just plot. It's gonna, you gotta push the plot forward. Yeah. I get it, but I like the um, I like the character of Jake in this film, and because he's he's been through a lot, and I, I love the the opening of the film where we saw the growth of the family. I found it re- a really beautiful sequence. But uh, he is so obsessed with the protection element of being a father, where he he is hard on his sons, and he does treat them kind of like soldiers, and as, as like as like grunt soldiers to him being a high commander. Um, the way he speaks to them is very militaristic. And it all comes from his desire to keep them safe and his love for them. And especially after that first, uh, after that opening battle scene where um, his kids, um, his two sons, go enter the battle when they're not supposed to. Oh, the train raid? Yeah, the train raid. And he, he cusses them out. But he, the way he speaks to them is like soldiers. Uh, it's, it's the way his character has evolved where he, the protection of his family matters more than anything. But then 
he I believe he softens by the end of the film and understands that uh, the error of his ways of how he's approaching raising his kids and he sees that you know protecting them doesn't mean like being so hard on them and and just running away from everything but I can raise them to be good men and then they can become good fighters and we have to we can't keep running we have to fight and so it was a great evolution for his character in this film. It was a very traditional father, uh, father and mother dynamic for the family. Um, but by the third act, Neytiri proves herself to be just as fierce a warrior as anyone. And I love, I love the final battle sequence um, uh, where it was just Jake and Neytiri going to save their kids on the sinking ship. Also reminiscent of Titanic. Uh, it was great. And uh, it's, it's amazing to see when like Neytiri is fighting the humans and how small they are in comparison and then her, she is just like what, 12 feet tall and it's just amazing to see that scale and the change in size but it's it looks it looked so real in the first film it, it, it was definitely noticeable especially when you have a human and a Navi and shots together but with this film with the lighting with especially like how water like was glistening on their faces I, and one of my favorite shots was when Neytiri and Took are in the sinking ship and they emerge from the water in that in one of the hallways that's rising with water and I was like this, is this really happening I was like is that real <laughs> it's insane the close-ups are shockingly yeah. good especially it, with the fire glistening on them and everything the light yeah and then but Neytiri taking out that entire squadron basically single-handed was unbelievable yeah we talked about this uh, recently uh seeing uh strong protective fathers in film that we kind of have been have been disappearing from a lot of big franchise films and it's it's nice again to see that kind of character because it's important to see not just a, a strong nurturing protective mother but also the same thing for a father as well and like i said we were we're losing that in a lot of mainstream movies i feel mm-hmm. so i i love seeing that as well because you know Jake Sully's a great character great father he's hard on his sons but like Anthony said it's out of love and out of protection and trying to save them now in addition to the plot being the hunt for Jake Sully, we have a new highly valuable resource on Pandora that the Sky People are going after. It's no longer unobtainium. It's called Amirta. When Sky Army captures and kills a Tolkien, those whales, they extract a golden yellow fluid elixir from their brains, and it's referred to as Amirta, which will stop aging, literally stops aging for humans. The term Amirta is a Sanskrit word that means immortality, which is referred within many Indian religions. This is another Sanskrit word used by James Cameron. He named this film series title Avatar, which is also a Sanskrit word meaning manifestation of divinity in bodily form. Now, Amirta is highly valuable. Just that vial that they take from the brain of the Tolkien that that we watched slaughtered is worth about $80 million. And that's probably, what, 12 to 24 ounces of the elixir. It's tragic. It's horrific to watch, you know, the the whaling sequence, which is a huge problem still in the world. Whaling and and shark hunting and, and just big fish hunting and just... The way fish is yeah, shark fin hunting is so sad. Yeah, I mean, you can even rhinoceros hunting, elephant hunting. Yeah. It's it's so tragic. And then, like Andy said, it was a, a tough scene to watch, sequence to watch of these these fishermen hunting the Tolkien so brutally too. And to watch yeah. the waste of the Tolkien, especially when spiders like that's all you're here for, just that elixir, this entire body. You, that's all you're gonna use of this death and destruction of this species. It's just to get this elixir. So. 
I like how they changed to a new motivation for the Sky People to be back in Pandora. It was, you know, clever. I think it works better than Unobtainium because even though, like, Unobtainium is just a meta term for the first film, for that material, for that resource, a lot of people hate that kind of meta term for it. Yeah. Uh, but It's too on the nose. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little much sometimes. But uh, Amirta is an excellent motivation for the Sky People to continue their horrific evil endeavors on Pandora. Motivation for them to come back besides going after Jake Sully. And it's also much easier for them to extract. Whereas if they want to get on Obtanium, it's always located underneath like a major tribe. And so it's going to be all out war to get it. So wasting resources. Whereas um, hunting the the Tolkien, it's, there's nobody fighting them fighting them for it so they're just basically doing it without any problems so it's a much easier process for them to get that material it has this film has a very powerful opening because obviously with the family element of the of the Sully's growing their clan but then it, obviously we have the sky people coming back to pandora and they waste no time basically terraforming a large part of the landscape they're storing the forests just by just from the jet engines and, and propellers and whatever from their ships destroying the forest. There's and then, deceleration, yeah. Yeah, just so quickly creating their own little mini cement city on Pandora. I found the cement city to be really striking and, and tragic to see in a powerful way because uh, James Cameron, he he panned from the beautiful forest all the way to like this just this concrete jungle. So from real jungle to concrete jungle, and just roads and bridges and highways and all concrete and metal. And uh, it was just really sad to see. You could feel like the destruction of, of, of the beautiful nature that was there. And it was really impactful. All right, how about we get into our intermission. Then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about Avatar The Way of Water, the movie and story. And then also all the visual effects behind the scenes. How the heck they actually made this movie and why it looks so realistic. Let's do it. Before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. We have different tiers, $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100 tiers. Each one gets you different perks. $100 tiers, obviously, the ultimate perk system. Go check those out and definitely support the show by becoming a patron, as well as getting tickets to our first live show in downtown Los Angeles, which is going to be on Saturday, January 21st, 2023. You can get tickets for in-person from DynastyTypewriter.com. Just go on their calendar. January 21st, you'll find us there, as well as from the link in our Instagram bios. You can also live stream this show from anywhere around the world and get broadcast tickets online from moment.co slash Raiders of the Lost. Again, moment.co slash Raiders of the Lost. The link in our Instagram bios and everything will also take you to those ticket sales. That way you can watch the live broadcast of the show as it's happening around the world wherever you are. This episode is sponsored by MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Use our special promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order right now. They have a gigantic selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their poster library, as well as all sorts of sizes, framing, and even backlighting for your poster needs. These are high quality, they look beautiful, and they're super affordable. So go on over to MoviePosters.com and use our promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. This episode was filmed on Blackmagic G2 6K Pocket Cinema Cameras. Thank you so much to Blackmagic Design for these shockingly impressive 
cinema cameras that are also highly affordable just a couple grand a pop on these they work with photographic lenses as well as cinema and digital video lenses they are phenomenal cameras we got some pickup shots for our movie using them so thank goodness for Blackmagic Design sending us two of the Blackmagic G2 6K pocket cinema cameras. All right, let's head into our intermission and begin with the movie quote competition. Anthony, you ready? Ready. The unknown future rolls towards us. I face it for the first time with a sense of hope. The unknown future rolls towards us. I face it for the first time with a sense of hope. Huh. T2, Sarah Connor. T1, T1, Sarah Connor. damn it. <laughs> damn it. Driving in the Jeep. Yeah. <laughs> At least I got the character right. Yeah, yeah that's pretty close. Good quote. Yeah, thanks. All right, here's Because the next quote is, like, if a Terminator come, can come in. <laughs> I had to cut that. I had to cut that. All right, here's mine. I woke up, the pain and sickness all over me like an animal. Then I realized what it was. The music coming up from the floor was our old friend Ludwig Van in the dreaded Ninth Symphony. Oh, um, <laughs> that's a great quote. <laughs> um, a Clockwork Orange. Correct, Amundo. That's <laughs> after he's had the uh, the uh, procedure. <laughs> stop it, stop! <laughs> I love that movie. All right, guess this movie release here. Children of the Corn. 1978. 1984. Damn it. Guess this movie release here. On the Waterfront. 1960. Two? 54. Oh, I knew it was, yeah. It's quite old, yeah. yeah. He's died before 1960, I think. Who? Wait, no, I mean. Brando? Not Brando, I'm sorry. I got mixed up with oh, you're James, James, James for a sec. <laughs> I be. I was thinking of Issa Eden for a second. I always get them mixed up. Um, Moving on to movie pop quiz time. Which franchise has more films? The Alien franchise or the Terminator franchise? <laughs> Good question. It's a lot for both of them now. <laughs> I'm going to go Alien franchise. Can you guess how many? All right, let me see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Um, we count Alien vs. Predator? Yeah. Yeah, that counts. What do you got? Nine? Nine. Uh, it's actually so it's six. It's actually a tie. Uh-huh. So both Alien franchise and Terminator franchise have six movies. Alien vs Predator is actually not canon to Alien, so that technically does not count for an Alien franchise movie. Says who? It's canon to Predator. Yeah, well, it's an, it's Alien in it. It's, it's, it's in not it. Alien. It's it's, I'm just saying it's. I, so I would say, I would argue there's technically eight movies. No, I got it right then. I think I got it right. Nine. Yeah. Name the other ones. The Alien. The Alien Predator crossovers. There's how many? There's one. There's three. There's three Alien vs Predator crossovers. I think so Name. at least two. What? There's there's at least two. There's AVP. AVP came out. Um, what year is that? AVP. There's two. Alien vs Predator and then Aliens vs Predator Requiem. They're not canon to Alien. Yeah, well, there's still a- aliens only, in still it. Still, it would only be eight. The Xenomorphs in it. Well, I was close. It was a trick question, though, because it was a tie. Because I don't count Alien vs. Predator or Alien vs. Well, Predator. Well, so it's your personal name. opinion, then. It's not. It's well, factual information that they're not canon to Alien. They're canon to Predator. Says who? Wikipedia? No, says freaking James Cameron and everyone who, who made those franchises and Ridley Scott and all them. 
They're Predator movies. Yeah, but Alien's in it. There's I'm like a hundred Xenomorphs in it. But I said part of the franchise. They're not part of the Alien franchise. They're part of the Predator franchise. Uh, it's part of the franchise. Who owns the franchise? 20th Century Fox. I think Disney. They, I think I think they <laughs> call it part of the franchise. I'm just saying. I di- I disagree with you. I com- I completely disagree. Hey, you can you can disagree with me all you want. Yeah, I'm but I'm still wrong. Either way. But I think I was closer than I. Well, it was then. a tie, yeah. and then you add those, then yeah. it's eight. Uh huh. Because they both would have six minus the the crossovers. Understand? Trick question. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Here's my quiz question. Before he was a household name, Harrison Ford acted in two films from world famous directors. What were the films, and who were the directors? Let's see. We have Apocalypse Now from from Frank from Francis mm-hmm. Francis Ford Coppola, and then we have he's in a George Lucas money movie. I'm sorry, same director, same director. They're okay. both Coppola movies. Sorry. So then his other movie with Francis Ford Coppola that he was in that. <laughs> Before he was famous, was a movie called. <laughs> <laughs> you know this one. Come on, Coppola. I know. I'm just thinking of Harrison Ford, Coppola. Um, no, uh, the conversation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Got he it. plays the assistant to the to the boss guy. Oh yeah, yeah. the messenger yeah. guy. Got it. Great question. I knew you'd get it. Great, great answer, man. Thanks, man. All right. Um, do we have any? <laughs> what are we doing here? <laughs> do we have any unsubscribes? Yeah, we have an unsubscribe. <clears throat> we we just filmed. This is our third day in a row, so we actually banged through a ton. But there's one new one. Travis Ryan, fourteen fifty six, wrote what? Not even at least five Hallmark Christmas movies to contend with. Unsubscribe. Unsubscribe. Happy holidays, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Travis. Great five star review from Mashiro, a new listener. Fantastic. I've been li- I've been looking for a podcast. I can just listen to. Found these guys on TikTok and decided to check it out. Thank you so much for doing that. First few podcasts were good, but sound was super low, but it was fixed after those episodes. Yeah, those early ones. (laughs) We weren't really sure what we were doing yet. All the conversations pull you in and make it feel like you are sitting with them, chatting it up. That's what we want it to feel like. Love their touch on multiple topics and how they can tie in so many levels of perspective. This is great. I'll listen every day if I can. Wow, thank you so much. Thanks, pal. That is a wonderful five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. So glad you took the chance on us from TikTok and checking out these 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 guys over here just talking about movies. Now, on this day in film history, today's December 26th. Hope you all had a wonderful holiday if you were with your families. Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, it's all been going on. So hope you are safe and well and enjoying your time with your families and loved ones. In 1924, Francis Gum, who was later named Judy Garland, made her <laughs> debut in show business at age two and a half. <laughs> build as baby Francis. I think that was on stage or something. In 1940, the Philadelphia story is released. In 1957, Wild Strawberries is released from, obviously, Ingmar Bergman. In 1976, The Exorcist is released. In 1997, Spice World is released. In 2007, There Will Be Blood is released. In 2011, We Bought a Zoo is released. And happy birthday to Jared Leto and Jon Snow himself, Kit Harrington. <laughs> I didn't ask for it. I was waiting for that. That's why I paused. <laughs> My streaming recommendation is Bardot, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths on Netflix. This is Enrito's next um, newest film. My recommendation is Thelma and Luis, which is now on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's the best good for her movie ever. Uh, Ridley Scott and two of the best actors of their heyday, Susan Sarandon and Gina Rollins. Love it. Check it out if you haven't seen it. 
All right, let's get back into Pandora. And we want- have a Godfather. We have a shout out. Oh, who we got? Sal Koching. Sal is a chosen one patron. Sal, thank you so much, Sal. We appreciate you. You're an old friend, and we appreciate your support for the show. Hope you've been well. Haven't seen you in a while, but we miss you. Thank you so much for your support. It means the world to us. Really, thank you, Sal. Sally, you're the best. Appreciate you so much. Now, let's get back into our episode on Avatar. And I have a ton of cool behind-the-scenes information I got. I pulled from some articles from let's hear it. the New York Times as well as IBC. Because, you know, this is a complicated film. And people are like, why take 13 years to make, even though they were filming in 2017? But the first thing that they had to figure out was, obviously, they did motion capture for the first film and created that virtual filmmaking that we talked about in that first episode. Now it's kind of common. A lot of video games do this as well, where you're basically creating a virtual reality environment while you're filming. And you basically do this pre-filming, and then you're filming on your stage, in your studio, with your actors in mocap suits, but on your displays, on your computers, in your monitor, you're seeing... Uh, crude renderings of the environments of the scenes that they're going to be in. They can see all the creatures, the skies. It's obviously not detailed, the trees and bushes, but you can see basic elements and and crude renderings in CGI uh, in animations of the things that are in the shots or in the world around you. It's like a 360 view of what you've created in this program. And that's how they're filming this movie. It took a long time to develop all of that. But the biggest challenge first was figuring out how to do motion capture underwater because it never really been done before and the first major obstacle here was figuring out how to do it without scuba gear because you can't go down there with scuba gear there's too many bubbles flying around everywhere it'd be impossible to motion to capture the actors in their mocap suits it'd be impossible to do that because there's just too much motion in the water it messed it all up so basically what they had to do was have the actors dive and hold their breaths and it took a lot of time for them to practice these maneuvers and obviously they they did it very safely but the first step obviously was creating a giant tank to have for filming and they did this actually in Manhattan Beach studios in the west side of Los Angeles so after a proof of concept stage two massive tanks were engineered at Cameron and Laddow's Lightstorm Entertainment Hub at Manhattan Beach Studios, one used for training and more intimate character scenes. The larger second tank, the Swiss Army Knife of Water Tanks, as it's called, measuring 120 feet long, 60 feet wide, and 30 feet deep with 250,000 gallon capacity, was outfitted with powerful wave and current machines used to capture the film's more action-packed sequences involving Navi characters. Performance capture cameras were set up Around the tank's perimeter, along the safety cameras for, along with safety cameras for monitoring the, those in the water to control light reflection from above, the water surface was covered with small white floating balls inspired by an LA Times article Chapney read about shade balls deployed in Los Angeles Reservoir to reduce evaporation from a similar method Cameron used on his 1980 film The Abyss. So that's why if you've seen set photos, we talked about this in an in like episode a couple months ago when we were talking about just the, the, what we'd seen behind the scenes. There's a shot of Cliff Curtis, Kate Winslet, uh, Zoe Zaldana, and Sam Worthington. Their heads are just above the water in a giant tank, and they have floaties and their mocap suits on, as well as all these white plastic balls all over the surface of the water. That was to stop the light or to control the light from above from just ruining the sh- ruining the shots down below in the water of the tank so they could get really clear visuals down there when they were doing motion capture. 
really clever stuff. To capture the underwater action with sufficient clarity, it was not possible for anyone in the tank to use scuba gear again because air bubbles would interfere with the accuracy of the motion capture sensors and cameras. How could Cameron keep his cast in water long enough to capture their performances? just holding their breath the entire time. Everyone, in the, including new and returning actors like Sam Wellington, Zoe Zeldana, Sigourney Weaver, Kate Winslet, as well as reference camera operators, grips, and safety divers accompanying each actor would have to work at holding their breath underwater, which required extensive training, additional safety procedures, and lots of time. And Kate Winslet beat Tom Cruise's record for holding her breath underwater for a scene, which I'm sure we'll be seeing that in the third film because her character doesn't have a ton of action sequences in this movie. But also they were they were so they weren't like coming up for air every time they ran out of breath. They would keep um, oxygen tanks down on the floor so when they would like run their scene they'd go back down to the bottom and breathe the air and, and get the oxygen from the tank. So that's how they they actually stayed underwater for hours on end. And Sam Worthington was actually the only actor who, throughout filming, just always maintained a presence underneath the water and never came up for uh, a break because he found it actually more peaceful. And he, everyone else would like, after a few hours, to take a break up above the surface, but he always stayed below. Now, Kirk Crack was the free diving instructor and kind of the safety coordinator in charge of these actors for holding their breath and diving underwater. And even in obviously Sigourney Weaver, who's I think 65 years old, impressed Kirk Crack immensely because she played Kiri in the motion capture entirely. So she's playing a character who's like a teenager doing all this intense stuff at 65 years old at the bottom of a tank holding her breath. Incredibly impressive. Really, really great stuff. Also, what a digital, what effects are the visual effects company? Obviously, that Peter Jackson co founded when they were making. Uh, the Lord of the Rings movies back in Wellington, New Zealand. They worked, obviously, on Avatar, the first film, and this one. And like I said, creating the CGI water was a huge challenge, and most of the water in this film is visual effects. So, according to the New York Times, nearly all of the water in the film is computer-generated. Of the 3,240 visual effects shots Weta worked on, 2,225 involved creating water. To bring Pandora to life, the team at Weta had become experts not only in hydrodynamics, but also in rendering those complex physics photorealistically. The way water splashes, sprays, and saturates in the parlance of the industry had to be solved. Again, this had never really been done on this level. We'd seen, you know, pretty decent realistic water in animated films before, but on the scale that we're seeing, not just the ocean, the waves, the splashing, but I mean, when you're watching this movie, just watching the water trickle down faces looks incredibly realistic, plus the rain as well. Phenomenal. Now, according to Eric Sandin, one of the visual effects supervisors at Weather, there were something like 1,600 different major effects simulations of the water, the proper flow of waves on the ocean, waves interacting with characters, waves interacting with environments, the thin film of water that runs down the skin, the way hair behaves when it's wet, the index of refraction of light underwater. We wanted to make it all physically accurate. As part of their research, the team shot hundreds of hours of reference footage. Wind ripples on the surface of water, waves hitting rocks, the movement of seaweed. Saints enlisted a friend to get dunked on camera so that the team could study the effects of water on curly hair. Cameron himself provided reference material from his own deep sea dives, as well as he filmed a lot of reference material when he made Titanic about water and how it works and moves with camera development. 
Wetter pioneered ways to make things look wetter, recently filling a patent application for methods of generating visual representations of a collision between an object and a fluid, which sounds like it was very complicated to make. <laughs> this innovation was especially useful in one sequence where a human character named Spider, our guy, Space Tarzan, emerges onto some rocks by a group of Navi dripping with water. The shots blend live-action footage of the actor Jake Champion, who was filmed in a wave pool, with the CG of the Navi. That's a great point you made earlier when you're watching um, Spider with the Navi, how incredible it looks, the CGI, but also the water. He's wet with real water versus the Navi, this, the motion-captured characters. They have CGI water on top of them, which you can't even distinguish between the two. It's amazing. Absolutely incredible. Now, I got a little more here. Let me see Let's what I'm, I got. It's fascinating. Keep yeah, going. Let, let me see some more it's stuff so I cool. got. Production designer, this is from IBC. Dylan Cole was tasked with the d designing everything relating to natural Pandora and the Navi, while PD Ben Proctor was charged with focusing on the environments, vehicles, and weapons of the film's human military, human industrial military unit called Resources Development Administration. So I think that's a really smart thing to do to have two different production designers, one developing the Navi and Pandora, one developing the Sky People's technology in their look as well. I think it just adds so much. It's kind of like when Hans and James Newton Howard did different themes for Batman Begins, whether it's Bruce or Batman. Exactly. Cole gave the Reef people, the Metkayina clan, a slightly different shade of blue than the Amatkaya, and that's uh, Jake Sully and Atiri's clan that they have to ex exile from, with a different physiology and thick protuberances of fin-like cartilage beneath the skin. We talked about that earlier. A mammalian species called Lu was conceived as a cross between a biplane version of a manta ray fused with the long neck of a plesiosaur with the carrard wings of a European jet fighter. I believe those are the things that they're... they're the uh, Metcaini, uh, Metcaini, uh, riding, fly and ride yeah. on in the water. By contrast, the creatures called Skimwing are amphibious, with the design inspired in part by the lying fish, by the flying fish, but with a different shape, head, and bright Pandora rings. I believe they created um at over sixty different new species of animals for Pandora and for the Navi to interact with. Let's move on to some more. Let's talk about the cinematography for. Avatar The Way of Water. Again, this is from IBC. Performance capture of the lead actors, including Kate Winslet, Zoe Saldana. Sam Worthington and child actor Jake Champion began as early as September 2017 and ran for roughly 18 months with Cameron and the cast working on scenes for all four of the sequels. You know what's crazy to me is they were filming this so long ago and we just got behind the scenes photos like last year of, yeah. or early this year of them in the tanks and everything. It makes, think, it makes you feel like they were filming it last year. You yeah, know what I mean? It's nice. Yeah. It's so long ago. We were only in LA for three years. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's th three years before the pandemic. That's absolutely bonkers to me. Russell Carpenter, who shot Cameron's True Lies as well as winning a Best Oscar for Cinematography for Titanic, was tasked with designing an interactive lighting scheme that would combine CG with live action. Virtual lighting for the film took a full year in prep alone. So that's incredible. They also developed virtual lighting as well as the virtual filmmaking of the 3D cinematography. According to Carpenter, our lighting that we did in the live action scenes had to merge seamlessly with whatever environment we were in, whether it was a dense jungle or underwater or in the RDA facilities. The lighting team built a system of moving lights which could be operated remotely, allowing them to make extremely precise strikes of light exactly where they should be. Acquisition was made natively, aka not processed, in 3D and 4K using Sony Venice cameras in their Rialto format. 
which enables the sensor block to be separated from the camera's processing hardware handy for stereoscopic pairing. Data was fed through a pipeline at various resolutions and frame rates, including 3D, 48 frames per second in 2K and 4K, 3D, 24 frames per second in 2K and 4K, and 3D, 24 frames per second in HD for Cameron on set to be looking through the monitor at. And actually, Anthony brought this up before the episode. He said, did you notice that there were different frame rates? I'm like, I think, yeah, actually, yeah. you're right. So yeah. they shot in two different frame rates, which is really interesting. I was like watching. I was like, this, there's definitely going back to 24 frames a second a few times. <laughs> also, what's cool about the lighting is they were using huge um, LED screens. Um, there's a shot of a sequence when there's fire lighting most of the set during one of the night sequences. And... They had huge, like basically like LED screens with flames burning on the screens digitally to light as if fire was pouring on their faces, which I thought was a really smart way to do it. And you know what I noticed what with the cinematography in this movie compared to the first Avatar film is they were doing a lot more nuanced and advanced camera techniques like focus pulls that you didn't really see very much in the first Avatar film where it's the same shot, we're focused on a character close to the screen, then it pulls focus to a different character on the screen, which is very complicated to do, not just practically in real life because it's easy to mess up, but just to do that with motion-captured CGI rendering characters is kind of mind-blowing. It's a good point, 100%. What else can we talk about? We can talk about the high frame rates. So high frame rates alternates between 24 and 48 with the director dialing between the two in the final picture, using the higher speed to smooth the motion and faster action sequences and toning it down during slower dialogue sequences. I think that's what you were seeing, is slowed down for the dialogue moments. This was likely done using post-production process called True Cut Motion, with which Cameron recently remastered Avatar and Titanic. I think the reason for him doing that is the higher frame rate of 48 frames per second. Um, it kind of takes you out of the uh, film illusion, and it looks a little too like you're, like you're watching a video on YouTube maybe, just because the motion's so smooth, but it works with action. And then watching performances with that high frame rate, doesn't it kind of maybe takes you out of it. And so I think it going to back to 24 during dialogue moments, during during dramatic moments is probably the best decision to make because of the frame rate change. Now, let's talk about some editing with Cameron, the editorial team led by Stephen Rifkin. John Rafora and the late David Brenner selected the best performances for each moment of a given scene into performance edits in preparation for the virtual cameras to create specific shots. This technique that Cam- this was a technique that Cameron helped pioneer in 2009 and has since evolved into full-blown virtual production enabling him to integrate CG versions of live action performances into a CG environment. It is bonkers what you can do now, what they've developed. Now, According to him, I could see everybody where they're supposed to be, above or below the water. I could talk to them over the diver address system. They were acting to real-time direction based on what I was seeing in my virtual camera. That's amazing. He's literally walking around on set with a camera or a monitor, uh, seeing the virtual environment as the actors are performing in mocap. That's And wild. you see the renderings of the avatar in that. Absolutely insane. Once the virtual camera shots were edited into cut sequences, the CG shots and live action performances were turned over to Weta. In effect, the editing team were pre-editing sequences, including all CG lighting, CG props, CG costumes, characters, creatures, and environments ahead of the live action photography. So they're already developing all the stuff in the scenes and the locations before they even started filming. It's a hybrid form of the craft that emerges that merges the editing techniques of pacing and shot selection used to create wholly animated films with the flexibility of honing the story based on performance and multicam captured on set. 
No, it's like, yeah, it's like, it's basically a combination of both styles of filmmaking. It's amazing to see how much technology was developed before they even started filming. Yeah, really interesting. It's really cool. And he's basically editing on set yeah. in a lot of ways. He's taking different moments from different takes to just capture and make the scene out of, like, while they're mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Which is really incredible. It's efficient, even though it took so long to make. But now, it seems like it's the only way to really pull it off. <laughs> Let's move on to some more stuff. How about costume design? Let's do it. Although the vast majority of Navi costumes were only going to be realized digitally on screen by what effects, even though it looked so goddamn oh my, real. Like the strap around his hand. Incredible. I was like, is that real? Many of the costumes and much of the jewelry were fabricated by costume designer Deborah Scott as real tangible items. One of the reasons that we've made the garments to completion is that the motion of the garment cannot be understood without having a whole piece. If something's heavy or feathery or light or stringy, the way these things move in the air, standing at a breeze, underwater, you really have to have that sample to see what happens to it. So that's really fascinating that they created all these props and wardrobe in real life. Yeah, a couple of the simple things that I found really impressive was this strap around uh, Jake's hand that he wraps around his hand. Also, the bracelet that Neytiri holds. And it, I felt like with um, with CGI objects, especially things like something like a bracelet or a necklace, it, it it always um never looks real because of how the object in, in interacts with the space but it felt like it was really being held and it was a real object and i think that that makes sense how they did it by actually building these pieces for the actors to actually physically interact with and also for the the filmmakers to capture on film on on, on digital cameras like how this thing actually moves in the world. So I think that made all the difference in the world. Let's read some more from IBC about the visual effects. For the first film, Weta had developed an image-based facial performance capture system using a single SD head rig camera to record the actor's facial expression and muscle movements, including eye movements. This head rig has been upgraded to HD for the sequel with two HD cameras designed to capture even higher fidelity performance. Every element of the lush, exotic world needed to be created and rendered digitally. More than five years of R&D went into writing new software and methodology for the sequel, which claimed significant breakthroughs in lighting, shading, and rendering of scenes set underwater. Again, this is why this movie took 13 years to make. It took them five years just to develop the technology before they could start production, which is shocking. The final bit of behind-the-scenes information I found, shooting out Avatar 2, 3, and 4. Not only as has much of the performance capture been already made for some of the principal actors for Avatar 3 and 4 after 2, but many scenes have already been shot for Avatar 3 and some for the fourth series. I believe he has a nine-hour cut of Avatar 3, and he has the first act filmed for Avatar 4. And again, Avatar 5 has not been greenlit, but... Uh, Avatars 2, 3, and 4, obviously 2 just released. 3 and 4 are greenlit. They're in production. Yeah. They're going to get made no matter what. So I think the studio is just waiting to see if, are we, should we keep spending this much money on it? And they'll be coming every two years. So 2024, we'll get Avatar 3. And then in December 2026, we'll have Avatar 4. It's amazing to see how, you know, the the 13-year difference. And you're like, oh, what's been taking so long? And then you realize... It has been a nonstop production ever since the first film. Like they, they've just still been going full tilt. It's just all behind the scenes um, development and uh, prototypes and uh, testing. Uh, and it seems like they never slowed down the production. It's just that they weren't able to film for several years because of the the t- technology problem. So it's amazing to see how much it's, how much went into this film. It's it's fascinating. Um, and, and congrats to the entire crew, every facet of the production for 
sticking through it for this long time to craft something that, you know, has never been done before. And it felt like a wholly unique experience at the cinema for me. And it took 18 months to film. Yeah. It took That's 18 very months long. to do That's the very performance capture shooting for Avatar 2, mm-hmm. which is why they're, they're, they're filming Avatar 4 right now. And they, it took so long to film Avatar 3. It takes over a year just to film each of these films in the motion capture, in the tanks Amazing. and everything. Yeah. Absolutely phenomenal work. It's, it's just breathtaking what they've accomplished. Now, I do have another con with this movie that Let's I want to talk it. about. And it's it just adds to the, the, the kind of oftentimes cliche characters and cliche plot. Um, I know Sully stick together is a motto with the group, but these kids are constantly just like, <laughs> they're always getting into trouble. Like every day they're getting into crazy amounts of trouble, not to mention they're getting put in, in dire situations, life or death situations. And they're always bringing all the kids. Like they're always bringing little Took. Yeah. Like Took, you should leave her. Like Kiri yeah. brings Took. Kiri, come on. What are you, doing? Like, what are you bringing her Kiri, for? Kiri, like when they go to try to save Loak or help Loak with his Tulk yeah. gun. And Kiri, you should not be taking Took. You should be throwing her back. She is like eight years old. Like, what's going on? So all the kids are always in these life or death situations together. I get it. Slowly stick together. That's like a motto. But sometimes it's like, it's just kind of forced plot to get them all together so that Neytiri and Jake have to like, we have to save all of our kids at one time. It's like the stakes are so high every time. Yeah, well, yeah, I totally agree. But also in the finale, I was like, oh man, let's this go get our kids back. It's intense. Let's get it's our great. kids back. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. But also like, yeah. they could have just done that for one. But like every time, like why is Tuck being taken out in these dangerous <laughs> situations? Goodness. Little Tuck. Uh, but ultimately... I think this improved on the original film in a lot of ways, and I found it extremely emotional uh, and very powerful and profound with its messaging. Uh, and again, the CGI is the best I think that's ever been done in film history, and I can't wait to see the next one. Next one, honestly, I think that they're they're valid to be keep getting made. There's nothing else like it out there. Uh, it's really an event and a, a truly in- incredible spectacle to behold in 3D. And I can't wait to see it again, actually. Yeah. Uh, again, we've only seen it once, so we're just kind of running through the plot because we're not st- still like, there's so much to go over. And this yeah. is a three-hour and, what, 20-minute movie. Did you go to the bathroom during it? Yeah. Yeah, I went I went real quick. There are definitely moments where everyone's like, all right, I can go right when now. When I went, everyone, I saw like six other people went. It was like, I was At like, least, oh, perfect timing. It was like in the water stuff. It was the like, whale it's, stuff. It was getting a little slow. A little of the whale stuff. It was stuff. a little slow, yeah. so like, people were like, all right, I think this is a good spot for yeah. me. Because <laughs> when you factor in the 30 minutes of trailers and commercials, it's like, you're there for four hours it's a long time it's hard to not go to the bathroom for four hours plus you're driving there driving home it's a five hour event going to see this you gotta gotta take a piss sometime (laughs) i think i chose a great part but you chose a good part too yeah i I chose uh right after they get they get rescued by natiri and jake when uh the marines first come yeah basically nothing happened like it was just nothing important it was a little slow for a little bit (laughs) but i also i had to move my seat because the there's a person in between us based on the tickets that we got and oh. they smelled like B.O. And I was getting like B.O. smell wafting towards me. And for five minutes, I, I tried it, I tried it for five minutes. Then I moved over a seat. And James thought I left. Because <laughs> I was on the other side of this person. We couldn't get tickets together. Someone had yeah. got this perfect middle seat. So I was on their left. Anthony was on their right. And it, I was like watching the movie. And I saw that Anthony got up with my peripheral vision. I thought he was going to the bathroom. And then like 20 minutes go by, I'm like, is he still not back from the bathroom? I was like, I thought you got motion sickness or something, just uh-huh. like when we saw Prometheus. <laughs> so I was like, I, should I check on him? Should I go? So I went to the bathroom like 
when it slowed down and I, I'm like, I guess he's not here. Then I, I walked past you. I didn't notice you. You were just like two seats away with your hood on or like over your entire head. Just, yeah. I, I guess, trying to get rid of that wafting smell because was, I yeah. didn't pick up on any of it on the left side of the person. It must have been the, the airflow and how it must have been pointing at me yeah. because I had to put my I had to put my hood up and like cover like any wind from yeah i saw any, you your, your hood was like squeezed tight yeah. like <laughs> i was like i can't it was unbearable it was it was just bad b.o i was like was i guess terrible. anthony's really into this movie he's yeah. just like sitting over there just like by hood himself up. hood up <laughs> it was bad it was bad but i i, I ended up uh, moving over and it worked out and i i was just getting hints of it here and there but it wasn't bothering me so it was a weird it was weird so yeah i didn't leave but yeah i think this was definitely a worthy sequel to the first avatar film i think james cameron pulled it off he just showed us something we'd never seen before when it comes to spectacle and animation and cgi and motion capture and how far this technology that they've been developing the last 13 years has come it was really incredible and i've never seen anything like it it was awe-inspiring it was shockingly cool it was it was a good time it was an excellent you know excellent film and i really enjoyed it i don't know if it's in my top 10 of the year yeah, movies. I give I give it an eight out of ten. Yeah, I give yeah. it about eight out of ten too. Yeah. But when it comes to this year, we've had a great year of movies. Good, so I'm not sure if year. Avatar: The Way of Water is in my top ten for the year. But that's not saying that it's not a great film. I have to see it again, but I, I really I really enjoyed it. So I, I don't know what the rewatch value is going to be. I, I'm sure it's going to be pretty high. I probably won't go see it again in theaters. Maybe I'm going to see it in two D. Maybe in two D. Yeah. yeah, I'll watch it when it comes out streaming. But I, mm. I saw my one ticket. Like I'm not going to. We have to see this movie seven times. It has to. There's make a lot of good billion. movies coming out. Yeah, this month. we don't. It, There's a lot. We don't to have see. to give all the two billion dollars to this one movie. Yeah, I get James Cameron wants that two bill. <laughs> so does Disney. <laughs> They'll get the rewatches in China for sure. But yeah, it's gonna get. It's gonna make a boatload of money. It'll probably make yeah. two billion. I think it will. It was yeah. excellent. Uh, yeah. great job. Let us know how much you all enjoyed this film. Thanks for tuning in to our episode on Avatar, The Way of Water. Become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. And be sure to get tickets to our live show on Saturday, January 21st, 2023, with the link in our Instagram bio and in YouTube bios and in episode bios of this podcast episode. See you next time. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast was executive produced by our chosen one patrons. Luke Exelston, Tyler McFly, Darren Singleton, Anthony DeMeo, Becca Keen, Cody Moen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Cam, and Chandler Johnson. Thank you so much for supporting our show. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.